The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. If we are to live in such a way that sin is not reigning, it will be by conformity to the knowledge of our place in Christ. Our relationship to sin is precisely the same as Christ's relationship to sin in his death and resurrection. When that fact is seized by faith, sin can no longer be king in our mortal bodies to have us yielding to its passions. You owe all allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were espoused to him in order to be presented to him as a chaste virgin to the bridegroom. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Victory in Christ. A volcanic eruption is always a threat to human life. It fills the air with suffocating ash and spews molten lava that destroys everything in its path. Our sinful Adamic nature can never produce anything good in the sight of God. It constantly seeks to erupt in pride self-righteousness, and fleshly lust that threaten to destroy our relationship with God and others. How can we overcome the deadly effects of sin and enjoy daily victory in Christ? Let's find out as today we turn to Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 and 13. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Victory in Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the power which thou hast made available for us in Christ, so that we as believers need not cower under the power of the enemy, but may live in triumph, reigning in Christ. Bless the word to each listening heart in this hour, and use it to bring conviction to those who have not been saved, and to bring growth to those who know thee. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The text that we are studying in Romans is the sixth chapter of Romans, the twelfth and a part of the thirteenth verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Now, the Bible teaches us that every day may be V-day for the Christian. The fact that you may be living in the fires of a D-day instead of in the calm joy of peace is not because God has not made the provision for you to live in triumph. If you live as a slave to sin, it is not because God has not given you much more than an emancipation proclamation. In Christ, 
God has made the life of victory available as the normal experience of the believer. If it is something that is rare, ephemeral, and exceptional to you, it is because you want to lie down in sin. It should be noted before we proceed to study the life of victory that this passage teaches beyond question that the old nature of sin is not eradicated in the Christian. The old nature is not to be eradicated. It must be crucified with Christ. God himself cannot and will not do anything with our Adamic nature other than declare flatly what it is and then deal with it in the death of Christ on the cross. From the early part of this chapter to the present verses, there's a change of pace which is striking and which teaches us many things. In the second verse of the chapter, it states in the past tense that we are dead to sin, or as the revisions have it, that we have died to sin. Now we are told to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, and that we are not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Here is proof positive that the death through which we are said to have passed is positional, but that conditionally, as we well know from experience, sin is very much alive within us. Though God makes provision for its day-by-day -day crucifixion with Christ, the history of the saints through all the ages testifies to this fact. It is a sad commentary on the low level of Bible knowledge in the Middle Ages that there were so many people who tried to whip sin out of themselves by some self-punishment, by some flagellation, even torture. In those days, there was a tremendous awareness of the presence of sin within the heart, but almost no knowledge of the power to overcome it in the one way which God had provided for victory. The history of the doctrine of penance is one of the saddest in Christendom, and all the sadder when we realize that the mortification of the flesh was never meant to be a physical mortification but that God had made provision for sin to be overcome in its fountain within the soul and not in its outflow in the physical members of our mortal bodies. There's a great deal of difference between our reckoning ourselves to be dead unto sin and that which is called dead reckoning by mariners. There have been commentators on our text who have used such illustrations as dead reckoning to show a walk by faith and not by sight but there is much more. Dead reckoning, as the mariner knows it, is the estimation of a ship's position from the distance run by the log and the courses steered by the compass, with corrections for current, leeway, etc., but without astronomical observations. Such procedure can be followed only on the high seas, where there is no danger of running aground. For, as Lowell said in his paper on witchcraft, the mind when it sails by dead reckoning, will sometimes bring up in strange latitudes. But the believer who moves not by dead reckoning, but by the word of God and faith in that which is set forth in reckoning himself to be dead, will know that he is always steering by the stars and that there can be no deviation from the course. The Holy Spirit is his guide. Now, if we are to live in such a way that sin is not reigning, it will be by conformity to the knowledge of our place in Christ. Our relationship to sin is precisely the same as Christ's relationship to sin in his death and resurrection. 
When that fact is seized by faith, sin can no longer be king in our mortal bodies to have us yielding to its passions. Calvin expresses it well. Take this view of your case, he says, that as Christ once died for the purpose of destroying sin, so you have once died, that in future you may cease from sin. Yea, you must daily proceed with that work of mortifying which is begun in you, till sin be wholly destroyed. As Christ is raised to an incorruptible life, so you are regenerated by the grace of God, that you may lead a life of holiness and righteousness, inasmuch as the power of the Holy Spirit, by which you have been renewed, is eternal, and shall ever continue the same. This whole sixth chapter of Romans is centered around the theme of the death of our sin in the death of Christ, so that we might learn to live in holiness in the life of Christ. Eighteen different times in the chapter there is some word for death or dying, and these are translated from four different Greek words. There is in this chapter a verb, apothnesco, that is used six times. This word is commonly used of the natural death of man, but it is also the great word to describe eternal death and moral death. In some cases, it would mean to be deprived of real life, that is, especially of the power of doing right, of confidence in God and the hope of future blessedness, of the spiritual torpor of those who have fallen from the fellowship of Christ, the fountain of true life. It is also used in the meaning to become wholly alienated from a thing and freed from all connection with it. True Christians are said simply to have died as having put off all sensibility to worldly things that draw them away from God. And since they owe this habit of mind to the death of Christ, they are said to be dead with Christ. There is also a noun, necros, from which we derive our words necrology and necromancy which in its primary meaning refers to dead bodies and which has acquired the meaning of a spiritually dead person, of one who is destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to the Lord because given up to trespasses and sins and thus destitute of force and power, inactive and inoperative. This word is found four times in this chapter and it is this word which is used to tell us that Christ was raised up from among the dead ones and that we are to reckon ourselves to be a dead one so far as sin is concerned and in our present text that we are to yield ourselves unto God as those who are alive from among the dead ones. There is another word, a noun, thanatos, from which we derive our words thanatopsis and euthanasia, a word which in its primary meaning refers to the state of death but which has the New Testament meaning of spiritual death, the loss of that life which is alone worthy of the name, that is, the misery of soul arising from sin, which begins on earth but which lasts and increases after the death of the body, the miserable state of the wicked dead in hell. This word is found seven times in this chapter. The fourth word, thnetos, is the adjective used in our text to describe our bodies which are subject to death, even while they are living, mortal bodies. Now, when we study the relationship between these four words, we may paraphrase the chapter as follows, beginning back in the second verse. How shall we that 
are freed from all connection with sin live any longer therein. As many of us as were baptized into Christ were identified into the state of his death. So that as Christ was raised up from among the dead ones by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. Our union with Christ in his crucifixion was in order that the body of sin might be deprived of all force, influence, or power, that it might be brought to naught and made of none effect. For he that is morally dead with Christ is freed from sin. Now if we be morally dead with Christ, we know that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ being raised from among the dead ones goes through death no more. The state of death has no more lordship over him. For in that he went through death, he went through death once for all, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. In the same manner, accept and act upon the fact that you are a dead one so far as sin is concerned, but eminently alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, throw its weight around in your body that is in the process of dying, so that the heart of you should in any wise be subject to the dictates of that decaying thing. And, to quote Phillips, Do not then allow sin to establish any power over your mortal bodies in making you give way to your lusts, nor hand over your organs to be, as it were, weapons of evil for the devil's purposes. But, like men rescued from certain death, put yourselves in God's hands as weapons of good for his own purposes. For sin is not meant to be your master. So thus the situation is established. We have mortal bodies, and they have lusts. These draw us downwards to the flesh. But the Holy Spirit, identifying us with Christ, draws us away from them. This is the meaning of the phrase, the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit, and these are contrary the one to the other, as we read in Galatians 5.17. Some time ago, I had the visit of a young man in his middle thirties who came with a personal problem. I'm sure that he can never be identified from what I'm going to say, and the problem gives an illustration of the text that we're discussing. The young man was happily married and very much in love with his wife and their two small children. And he told me the story somewhat like this. He said, I work for such and such a company, and I have my own private office. Several months ago, my, my secretary was absent, and I had to use another girl. She came in and out of the office, doing my work for me, and it seemed to me that when she brought papers for my perusal, she got too close to me. And when she leaned over the desk to show me things, she let her hair trail across my face. I fought it down. But he said, after all, I'm a man. And along towards the end of the day, I, I put my hand on her, and she came right back to be kissed. And he said, even when I was kissing her, my eyes were closed, and I was seeing my two children running down the lane to meet me, and my wife standing in the door. I hated what I was doing. I realized that it was entirely mechanical, but I kept on. I had the greatest desire to push her from me, but I kept pulling her to me and I was realizing that my body was doing one thing and my mind was doing another. And I finally did push her from me, and fortunately just in time not to be caught, for I had wiped the lipstick off my mouth just in time to get it done before someone else came in, and the girl went out with some papers. When I went home that night, I hugged my children so hard that one of them cried, and when we got him to laughing finally, I told them that it was because I loved them all so much. 
He said, I, I had tears in my eyes myself, and my wife's eyes were shining. I told her that I'd surely hit the jackpot when I got her, and we all of us, the babies and ourselves, clung together in one of those moments that are indescribable. I, for one, I, I was afraid to let go. He said, my wife was supremely happy because I walked around the house that evening touching familiar things that we had scrimped to buy. I was expressing my love for the home and for her. And before God, I was never more true in all my life. And then the next day, it began all over again. I was never more miserable in my life. And he said, before a month had gone by, I realized that my lust and my love were in a terrible battle. When I came home, there was everything that I wanted in life. And all my love was bound up there with my dear wife and my two children. But when I went down to the office, he said, there was the machine of my body, which seemed geared to something terrible and meshed with the horror that was purely mechanical and which I wanted to get out of more than any fly ever wanted to get out of flypaper. One night I heard my wife tell someone that I was becoming more and more a homebody and that all I wanted to do was to stay at home. And it's true, I do. I follow her around the house. I stand with her in the kitchen when she's doing the work there and try to help her a bit. And I stand with her when she's putting the children to bed. This morning when I left the house, she told me that she thought that she was the happiest woman in the world because I showed so much that I loved her and her alone. I could hardly talk. In fact, tears came to my eyes and I lifted a lock of her hair to dry them. And I said to her, I love you more than life itself. And she cried. And I crushed her to me until she screamed and smiled all at the same time. And then I had to run off to get my train into town. And now, he said, I, I just broke away and came over here to see you. I, I, I've come over to talk it over. What shall I do? What can I do? Oh, it was a story that happens frequently in our unbalanced emotional life in this country. I finally persuaded him upon a course of action. We phoned his wife. She came into my office. I had a long talk with her. Fear leaped into her eyes for a moment. But I told her there was no need for fear. She said that she understood. And thank God I believe she did. She and I took a cab and went over to his office. He was expecting us. And I stood by as their arms went around each other. And she said, I know, I know, I understand. It's all right. And then I called the other girl into the office. She came in, and one could tell as the two women faced each other that each had full knowledge of all that was going on in the mind of the other. I shall never forget that scene. It typified for me the man's mortal body, the secretary as the flesh and the wife as the spirit, both striving for the mastery of that body. But the wife was not striving. She had long since won. In fact, she had never been in the place of loss for a moment. She knew in the depths of her soul that the mind, that the soul, that the heart of her husband had never been away from her for a moment. I had helped her to see that the glandular warfare of that body was strong and that the weakness which had entrapped his lust, which had sprung to life with the allure of strange flesh, was a thing that could be broken that his love for her, his wife, could never be broken. And when she had looked at him in that first moment of reunion, there was a complete understanding 
and a complete return of love. I turned to the secretary who stood there speechless, gripped with the tension of the moment. I said, she knows all about it. She loves him and he loves her completely. And he has never had any thought towards you except one of animal lust. You were never wanted except physically. And you are not wanted at all from here out. And as she went out, I asked her to wait in the hall. I turned to the couple, putting my arms around the two of them and linking them together as we prayed for a moment. I left them in each other's arms, where they still are today after these many years. And I went out the door and I saw the girl dabbling at her eyes. A chapter in her life ended. I talked to her a little and had hopes that a spiritual chapter might open in her life. Now apply this example to the life within your soul. You owe all allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. You were espoused to him, we read in the word, in order to be presented to him as a chaste virgin to the bridegroom. The lust that draws you away from Christ may not be the carnal sexual lust which attracted the man in my story. It may be some matter of the pride of soul, some inherent dishonesty, some ancient pattern of sin which you have gone over so often that it seems as a strong cord to bind you. I will not attempt to delineate all of the sins which might thus grip a Christian, for their number is legion, and in mentioning some, I might raise false pride in those who would not be the victims of those of which I had spoken. If I draw a blank and pause, then your heart and mind, influenced by the Holy Spirit, can bring before you the thing that is marring your victory. And while the man in my story was weak, he became strong through the power of a love that enchained him and bound him fast. And thus it is that God wants to draw you in. I've found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He bled, he died to save me. And not alone the gift of life, but his own self he gave me. Not that I have my own, I call. I hold it for the giver. My heart, my strength, my life, my all are his and his forever. I've found a friend, oh, such a friend. All power to him is given to guard me on my onward course and bring me safe to heaven. The eternal glories gleam afar to nerve my faint endeavor. So now to watch, to work, to war, and then to rest forever. I've found a friend, oh, such a friend, so kind, so true, so tender, so wise a counselor and guide, so mighty a defender. From him who loves me now so well, what power my soul can sever? Shall life or death or earth or hell? No, I am his forever. Surrounded then as we are by these serried ranks of witnesses, let us strip off everything that hinders, as well as the sin which dogs our feet, and let us run the race that we have to run with patience, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source and the goal of our faith. For he himself endured a cross and thought nothing of its shame, 
because of the joy he had in doing his father's will. And he is now seated at the right hand of God's throne. Think constantly of him, enduring all that sinful man could say against him, and you will not lose your purpose or your courage. And our dear Heavenly Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the message to each heart that listens. Thou alone knowest the struggles of the soul, the defeats, the desire for victory, the sad crying to thee. Thou seest, thou knowest every heart. Look upon those this night who are in trouble and in sorrow, for whom life itself seems ended, though dying has not yet come. Be with everyone in need, whatever the need. Restlessness for those who have not been born again. But upon all those who are truly thine own, may thy grace, thy mercy, thy peace abide. And unto thee be all the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ for victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. God provides all we need to live in holiness and to overcome sin and our spiritual adversaries. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Victory in Christ. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Victory in Christ, or simply request message number R6-28. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, All Things Work Together. Romans 8.28 declares, We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even to them who are called according to His purposes. Yet many times we may feel that nothing good could ever come out of our problems and circumstances. This free booklet shows how this precious and powerful promise applies to any situation you may be facing and can fill you with hope and encouragement when you need it the most. Ask for your free copy of All Things Work Together When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.